Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We have put together a programme which celebrates women. We find women who are striking out on their own and achieving some extraordinary results. I'm Linda Ness. And I'm Susie Thorpe. And we produce and present Women Making Waves. Today we meet missionary Irene Manley, who's spent most of her life abroad helping those who've become disenfranchised in Nepal and Mongolia. Irene talks about her life and paints a vivid picture of what it's like to live and work in these extraordinary cultures. And Kay King, a birth activist, fundraiser and project manager for maternity sector charities. Kay is campaigning hard to restore adequate indemnity insurance that is required for independent midwives to practice. Two extraordinary women guests coming up on this episode of Women Making Waves. Kay King talks to Susie and I about a campaign to help independent midwives who can't get insurance because their work is considered too risky. How much choice do we really have when it comes to delivering our babies? A recent change has meant that independent midwives can't insure their work because birth is considered too risky. So effectively, without insurance, they dare not work. This has led to less choice for expectant parents. Our guest today, Kay King, is here to talk about Childbirth Choices Matter, which seeks to change that. Thank you very much for joining us today, Kay. Thank you so much for having me here. It's wonderful to be here with you. No, it's very good to have you. Now, I believe that you're a doula. How did you get into working with expectant parents? I am a doula, yeah. I began working with expectant parents and families um, actually when I lived in South Africa. Um, I had recently had my own child and I was working in rural communities, actually working in arts and health in a cultural programme over there with my eight-month-old child. And there I befriended a community doula who slowly took me under her wing and I began working there with her and then came back to the UK and continued that work. My work now as a doula is entirely informed by experiences of loss. So I work with families after miscarriage and stillbirth and termination. So I work just with families in that capacity. I do also get the privilege of being at live births after loss-informed circumstances. But yeah, really, it's funny my doula work, it tends to take more of a background now to a lot more of my campaigning and and daytime work. So it's always nice to be reminded that I'm also a doula. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Can you explain, just in case anybody doesn't know what a doula is, who is a doula? Of course. So a doula is normally a woman. Um, Sometimes we're working with men as well, but mainly women. And they support people who are giving birth. So they come alongside families to offer support and guidance with the emotional and the practical and the befriending side of the process of giving birth. So it's a little bit like having a Sherpa, a guide with you throughout your pregnancy journey, Mm -hmm. your labour and birth and your postnatal period. So 
Unlike a midwife who oversees the physiological process of birth or the medical process of birth, however a family is is choosing to navigate that, a doula is there more as a sort of a lay person, as a friend to just support the woman in ensuring that their birth intentions and wishes are supported all the way through. And it, it provides that continuity that unfortunately we don't see quite so much of within NHS midwifery these days of, yeah. of being able to support women right the way and birthing people all the way through their journeys yeah I can imagine they probably just don't have time I don't know about you Susie but I could have done with a doula (laughs) when I was having my child that's for sure absolutely how important is it to, to be a doula then in a utopic world the midwife would have the capacity to be both doula and midwife you know that would be the role very much historically that midwife would have played in a more community-based local setting but with both the positives and the negatives that come with NHS maternity care you know we have a a free health system where we are able to access our midwifery care for free in this country which is incredible but unfortunately the way in which that is structured and the way in which our midwives work within the NHS doesn't really allow for that relationship building sometimes it doesn't even extend to allowing that same midwife to be present for the duration of the same birth because of shift patterns and the way that it happens and and so the the doula I think is is vitally important because it it means that for the pregnant person they've got a point of contact all the way through someone to throw their questions at someone to chew the bit over how they want to give birth what they need to consider sometimes they also use their, their doula in a real advocacy role you know if a, if a woman is requiring any specific circumstance or adaptations to what would be considered standard or normal care then their doula will work with them to find research and evidence that can support them in ensuring that they're getting the respect and the dignity that they need there's a lot of disparities in terms of the outcomes for women and birthing people in the UK right now I'm not sure if that's something either of you are familiar with but we've seen several reports coming out and lots of information publicly around the disparities faced for black and brown and minority ethnic groups in terms of care within the maternity care system in the UK and having a doula allows for us to ensure that you know that the every need is met that the woman or birthing person is matched with someone who they feel is their companion the whole way through. This is a bit like having a a mother or sister on steroids because you've got all of that experience that you're bringing I'm taking that, Linda. That's my new... When someone says to me, what's a doula in the future? I'm saying it's a mother or sister on steroids and having it. It's good. I'm happy to be of assistance there. (laughs) You have two children yourself. Was your birth experiences, were they good experiences? Yes, they were. I actually had a miscarriage before my firstborn. So there was quite a lot of nervousness, I suppose, in my early pregnancy. And then I discovered something which I now know of my body, which I could have never known then, which is my body likes to incubate babies for 10 months rather than nine. And it <laughs> and it did so with both of, of my children. So navigating that with my firstborn was what propelled me into the birth world because suddenly all of the things that I thought would just be standard, this will happen at this point, this will, ha- you know, I've got my due date, I've got all of the information that I need, I'm very empowered, I want a home birth, I, I know what I want for my birth choices. And suddenly we're past our due date and then we're a week past and then we're two weeks past and then we're three weeks past and we're into this very unknown territory where we had to navigate a lot of choices and a lot of decisions as as a couple um, at that at that point and really the lack of information that was out there or the lack of sense of community really led me to having to research the birth world for the first time in my life and 
Yeah, now I know. My body just likes to keep them in there. <laughs> and nobody's going to know that by reading a book, really. You know, I mean, I was really into book reading when I was when I was expecting. But actually, the reality at the end of the day, and, and I also went to NCT classes and everything. I did everything right. But the reality was very, very different when it came down to it. And it would have been great to have somebody such as yourself beside me, somebody that could reassure you and just give you really, really good advice. For all we know of birth, and we do know a lot, and, and midwives get excellent education and training in this in this country on, on many levels, but for all we know, it is a very mystical type of magic. And, and, that's, that's so funny yeah. you should say that, you know, because one, one of the questions I've written in front of me was, you must have been present at many births, and does that moment ever lose its magic? That's actually in front of no, me. That, no, it yeah. never loses its magic. And, and obviously that, that's very different for me now, because I'm often supporting women with known stillbirths. So some of the magic has been substantially lost prior to the birth. But does the process and the physiological process of birth ever lose its magic? No. It's incredible what we can do and it's incredible what our bodies do, how we heal, how we respond, how our hormones shift and change. It's All of it is absolute magic. It just made me think when you say about the wonderful magic moment when a child is born, but that fantastic programme, One Born Every Minute, I never thought as a mum that I'd want to watch somebody else give birth because I knew exactly what I was going to go through. But it's just a magical programme. Does anybody know that one, the one born every minute? I think I've seen it. Yeah, it's a documentary, isn't it? It's absolutely documentary. It is a documentary, yeah. You're obviously a doula in the making there then if you've been inspired by watching others. Get yourself on a doula training course. (laughs) (laughs) My mother always says it's a miracle, so it is a miracle in my book anyway. But I just loved it. So I, I can imagine just a tiny bit, Kate, what you go through you know i'm there for the women as well and it is incredible to support those families and through that magical and just incredible life-changing time for them the childbirth choices campaign that you're running childbirth choices matter is what it's called this situation where insurance companies make it so expensive to insure midwives it's practically impossible by the sound of it i think you cite seven thousand five hundred pounds per birth as being the premium We've got a fantastic NHS service of midwifery leg care and labour wards and you can go and you can have your whole maternity journey supported through our National Health Service and there are phenomenal midwives working within it. But there are also a pool of midwives in the UK who choose to be self-employed, just as in any other profession, any other healthcare profession, so physiotherapy, dentistry, anything that you're looking at, you would have private practices as well. There are midwives who choose to want to work in a self-employed capacity and What that allows for those midwives to do, those midwives that are independent from the NHS, is it allows them to work with a national remit so they can take clients or patients or women, birthing people from across the country. They can be specialists in certain fields. So just like as a doula, I specialise in working in loss-informed. You might have a self-employed midwife who has a very niche specialist area. She might have supported a lot of plus-size pregnancies or a lot of vaginal births at home after a cesarean section. Rather than like an NHS midwife who would work within one trust, they would work nationally. And so we've always had this absolute luxury and wonderful, wonderful range of ways of of choosing how you give birth, whether that is within NHS care or whether that is through obtaining and seeking an independent midwife that you want to journey your pregnancy and birth with. And unfortunately, the insurance situation has somewhat changed since independent midwives started practicing. So it used to be the case that independent midwives could practice without indemnity. And then 
after a lot of legislation against substandard care within maternity within the NHS systems, the insurance providers began to take their data from the data of liability and legislation nationally and took that data from the NHS. So they started looking at how much money was going through law cases and suits against maternity services. And that is what they began to inform their insurance products on for midwifery across the board. No independent midwife in the UK has ever had a successful litigation against them. And so it's not the same data coming out of independent midwifery. And in fact, the statistics for any kind of substandard care are way lower within the self-employed midwifery. Obviously, there are also way less of us, uh, way less independent midwives practicing. But that data just pushed the availability of insurance completely through the roof. And last year, in June 2020, it became just impossible for independent midwives, self-employed midwives to obtain the indemnity insurance that is required from our regulator from the Nursing and Midwifery Council because every insurance provider that we approached was asking for premiums of around 7000 per birth. And obviously that's on top of the cost of the service of your independent midwife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and what that does is that rather than increasing choice, that pushes the choice into a very elite subsector of, of clients who would be able to afford to pay thousands yeah. for their birth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Have you have you tried to lobby the insurance companies yet or is that something that you you've considered doing? So one of the concerns and it's a really good question. We have spoken to insurance providers and I continue to push in in the direction of talking to different insurance providers and seeing if there's ever going to be somebody who has a magic wand that they can wave over what they can provide. That conversation is still very live, but IM UK, the independent midwives of the UK have done a lot of work in approaching as many underwriters and insurance providers as they possibly can. And one of the challenges for self-employed midwives is just needing to know that they can develop their practice as private practitioners and continue with that long term. So since 2014, since it became obligatory for all practicing midwives to have this indemnity, they've been through a number of different providers last year in June is when the final provider we were with an American provider at the time and they increased their premiums and eventually led to the point where we had to withdraw from having indemnity insurance. So no independent midwife, no self-employed midwife has been able to work legally as a regulated midwife in the UK since June last year. So at a a time that we are desperate for more midwives, where we are desperate for support to the NHS in terms of midwives being available and to take up some of the slack of people requiring home birth. We've got a good few hundred independent self-employed midwives unable to work legally in the UK at the moment. We have had some really great examples of where local trusts have used their own commissioning to enable taking on self-employed midwives in bank staff capacity. But what that does is that often limits the geographical area that that self-employed midwife can work because they would be working under the insurance of a trust. So what the Childbirth Choices Matter campaign about, as well as a number of other things, our our agenda isn't only about trying to support self-employed midwives, it's about increasing choice across the whole spectrum of birth. But one of the key areas for us right now is to find a way for us to develop an insurance product that we own. So you're actually going to become the broker yourselves? We are going to work with an underwriter and create our own product, yes. Wow. Yes, that is the, the goal of the campaign at the moment. That must take an awful lot of money to do that, surely. 
Because so presumably we, if someone does litigate in the unlikely circumstance, presumably it could be millions that you'd be liable it could. for. So we're, we're not going to be in a position to launch the product until we've got three million. And then the underwriter we're working with will be able to set premiums at around 500 to 1,000 a birth rather than the 7,000, which is much more in line with what has always been the case when we've been operating with insurance. But what that will allow us to do, and, and looking on the bright side, when we do reach 3 million, because we will, um, when we reach that goal and we have the product lives and self-employed midwives are back and able to work, Childbirth Choices Matter will continue as a campaign and we will continue to raise money and the premiums will all contribute to increasing that pool and eventually what we will turn that into is funding and access funding for people who require a self-employed midwife but can't afford it so we're also looking at extending the choice out of just people who are paying and providing subsidized and bursary based care for people who require that unique offer that comes from a self-employed midwife oh that sounds like a great idea it does Kay, has this been done before in any other country are you the first in the uk or is this something that you've seen and you've taken the template and you're doing it yourself because you know it's a great idea and as linda said it's going to take a lot of work but you've obviously you've considered quite a bit here but has any other country done this what you're doing i'm maybe misquoting here but i'm pretty sure no other country has gone down the route of developing their own insurance product there have been and continue to be in many many countries issues with the way in which self-employed midwives would work and we know that australia have come up with relatively unique solutions to that as well but obviously what's very unique about the uk is that we have a national health service so that's not something that exists in other countries most midwifery care would be being paid for through private insurance anyway that's taken out by the woman or birthing person yeah. but our, our free maternity service unfortunately means that those midwives that don't want to work in that trust-wide outlook are having to seek indemnity insurance themselves because it's not that the client comes to them with their health insurance and claims on that for their maternity care it's the other way around the midwife needs to be insured so i think what we're doing is pretty groundbreaking to me it feels extremely like a feminist movement what we're doing through the the childbirth choices matter campaign feels extremely empowering for us Mm. to say okay there was a problem the commercial market couldn't meet it let's take it back into our own hands and yes it's the long haul yes this is a long road and a long route yes it really is how how are you going about raising funds what's the strategy there so in the early days we had a really big crowdfunder which was successful and we had a very generous private donor so we we made a really big splash to begin with uh, when we first launched the campaign which was about six months ago at the moment that there's a continuation of people making regular direct debits we are doing grant applications and we are at the moment working on the most exciting part of the campaign so far which is we've had a singer songwriter called nikita stark who has created a single for us which is coming out in march and nikita's song is called breathe again and it is absolutely beautiful she's written it especially for the campaign she's also a birth worker and doula herself a, a wonderful woman and just the most magical and incredible voice and will be being sold with the profits from it going to the campaign. So at the moment, a lot of our work is around pushing the single, comes out in March on Mother's Day. And 
that's a really tangible way actually that the general public can can hear the message of what we're trying to do and do something they can download the single which will be very much spoken about on all our social media handles and, and very publicly shared so that's a really great way for us to say you know if if you feel like you can't donate a huge amount of money but you would like to do something for the campaign download the single and and that's really exciting oh that is really exciting that sounds absolutely amazing it does. I mean, this has obviously had a, a huge impact on you and people that are working with you. And I'm sure you've made an incredible amount of friends and I would say allies in this. Mm. I'm going to be really honest about it. How has this impacted on you personally, if you don't mind asking, in the sense that the workload has increased, the whole spirit of it, the mental part to it, in the sense that you've taken on quite a lot. You're obviously quite driven by it. Quite rightly, this matters very much to you and to all women. But how has it impacted on your life? I've been involved with the Childbed Choices Matter campaign in my capacity as the executive director of a UK charity called White Ribbon Alliance that works to address and advocate for reproductive health and rights for women and girls across the world but we are the UK branch of it and I was approached by the the campaign which already existed which was made up of some of the independent midwives that had come out of work and for me it, it felt like it felt like a solutions driven campaign and I really like a solutions driven <laughs> campaign I like something that is saying you know here is a problem and it is a huge problem and it is reducing choice and that is a that is meaning that many many people are suffering not least the self-employed midwives but we have a solution and and to me in terms of social change that is such a wonderful campaign to work on really for me it's just been a complete honor to be involved in the campaign and you're you're completely correct i have met some incredible people the whole campaign team for childbirth choices matter is a phenomenal group of people who give their time voluntarily to really pushing this agenda and this message but from a from a White Ribbon Alliance perspective, we are always looking at how do we ensure that there is choice and respect and dignity and, and care for people that is personalised and focused on, on their individual needs. And so the Childbirth Choices Matter campaign was just, it was a bit of a no-brainer for me from a, is it sort of campaign that fits in into our agenda as a charity. So I, I guess for me personally, yes, it's been a wonderful opportunity to meet fantastic people. It is frustrating. It is so frustrating in, in many ways as a campaign because almost it's a kind of double-edged sword to what I've just said because so much of the work and the energy that we have to put in would just be resolved if we could find the right donor. You know, if it's rare that a social change agenda can be overcome just with money. And actually, this is one of those circumstances where it, it really could be changed just by money. So I spend a lot of time looking at funding, looking at ways that we can increase the attention to the campaign. And that can be frustrating because you kind of feel like you just need those few key people to really hear the message of what it is and, and hear how important it is and, and they just need to be a few key people or, or companies or organizations or sponsors who have got a big enough purse to <laughs> expand the purse strings at that time but i feel like independent self-employed midwifery is a key part of informed choice for women and birthing people i feel like if we are forced into our care providers that kind of doesn't really resonate with with the idea of having choice and respect whereas if we can look at our birth and say actually I want to do it this way this is who I want with me this is the environment this is the specialist this is the kind of care that I want then we can begin to make really informed choice and at the moment 
that's not there. What are you asking people to do if you were to ask them to do anything? Would you like them to contribute? Would you like them to, to contact you in that way? Yep, I would absolutely love for people to donate to the campaign. If you go to our website, there's a link to our Givey page, which is a, an easy online way of giving. Equally, if anyone sat there going, gosh, I know exactly the right person who's got a good few hundred thousand pounds kicking around, that would be fabulous. Always welcome to, to hear from you. I also think uh, you know, downloading the single is a really cheap and, and fantastic way to spread the message as well. And Nikita's song is is wonderful and it's a tribute to, to what the campaign is doing. But what we also need is for people to know. We need noise because the more noise we're making, the more people will be giving and the less expensive it is for each individual giver. Sharing us on social media, following us on, on Instagram and tagging in other people who you think might be interested is is all really important right now as with any kind of advocacy the more noise there is around it the more people know the more the issue comes to the place of being solved yeah this has been really really interesting i've really enjoyed chatting to you today me too me too thank you so much you've asked some really incredible questions it's been wonderful to be here with you well it's Mm, been it's been great having you thank you very much indeed kay king i'm talking about childbirth choices matter I didn't realise all of this was going on with midwives because I did think there was a choice, but I'd never looked into it. I just thought there were two options and one is that you went NHS and probably were encouraged to go into a hospital because they, they very much encourage that. Or that you went private and going private, of course, is probably still in a hospital, but incredibly expensive. I remember when I was doing it, a friend of mine went private and it was over £10,000. That was 20 years ago. Wow. I remember thinking the same, but not wanting to do it because actually the NHS were offering midwives to come and help me. They're not just kind of shouting about it and going, this isn't fair. They're actually doing something about it. You know, they're trying to set up themselves as the insurer, which is not what I expected. That was, Mm. you know, very unexpected. I think that's really interesting and really good. It is very commendable indeed. And let's wish them all the best for that. Indeed. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Coming up, we'll be joined by Irene Manley, who talks about her life as a missionary and paints a vivid picture of what it's like to live in Mongolia. Cambridge 105 Radio. In 1960s Cambridge, you might have shopped at Joshua Taylor, gone roller skating at the Corn Exchange and seen the Beatles perform live at the Regal Cinema. On Sunday mornings, John Gannon takes you back in time with hits and memories from the swinging decade. John Gannon's 60s scene, Sundays at 8am on the station that's live and local. Cambridge 105 Radio. Looking to buy a new home this summer but it feels out of reach? Then getting on the property ladder just isn't an option for you. Think again. New homes in Haverhill and Cottenham are available now with shared ownership with your mortgage deposit as low as from £4,000. The final two and three bedroom homes at Bower Place and Boyton Place also have exclusive incentive packages available worth over £2,500. With £1,000 shopping vouchers, £500 towards your solicitor's fees and three months rent free, book your viewing today to find out what's on offer. Reserve from just £99 and find your new home this summer. Think shared ownership, think complete moves. Visit complete-moves.co.uk or call 020-3640-7111 today. Terms and conditions apply. Need dropping off at work? Missed the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? 
Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. When Irene Manley went to university, she studied pharmacy. She had no idea that a few years later she would become a devout Christian and move to Nepal and then Mongolia. Irene tells Linda her story. Usually when we chat to a woman making waves, it's the first time I've met them. Well, the experience is a little different for me today because I've known Irene Manley for a long time because we were good friends at school. When we left school, we kept in touch over the years and I've always been interested and often downright surprised when I hear Irene's news because Irene's life hasn't followed the usual path that most of us follow because she's become a missionary and moved abroad. Irene has made a big difference to the lives of many disadvantaged people by helping them make a living. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Irene. Thank you, Linda, and it's really nice to be talking together again. Let's start at the beginning. When we left the school, you went off to Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh to study pharmacy. Did you enjoy these days? I would say yes and no. At the time, I enjoyed it, and that's where I met my husband, so there's some good parts about that. But then... Afterwards, I realised that maybe I hadn't made the best career choice for myself after all. As I got older, I realised that I had two things that had a bit of a challenge with pharmacy. First of all, I'm not really very careful. (laughs) And the other thing I have is I have extreme problems following procedures and directions. So both the problem of, as you know, being very careful and not liking to follow procedures I'm not really the best qualifications for pharmacists. <laughs> <laughs> but you you were a pharmacist for a little while, weren't you? Yes, yes, I was. And I qualified in Boots the Chemist, had a lovely time, great time. And then I had two children. We moved to the Netherlands and that was the worst move of my life. That was spectacularly difficult. And after that, everything else was easy. We moved to the Netherlands in 1987. Bill was in the oil industry and he got transferred to the north of Holland. Now... We thought we were moving to a remote region of Turkey, so we all had our injections to go to a remote region of Turkey and ended up in the Netherlands, as you do. An easy mistake to make. Of course, of course. (laughs) Although, to be honest, a remote region of Turkey actually would have been easier. Um, We moved to a part of the Netherlands where very few foreigners lived. Everyone said, oh, everyone in the Netherlands speaks English, no problem. Well, where we were, English was the fourth language. People spoke a dialect called Gronings first, then they spoke Dutch, then they spoke German, and after that, occasionally people might speak English. Okay. After a year and a half, we'd kind of got things going. My language was better, I'd made friends, everything was moving along. 
and we got transferred to the Middle East to Dubai. Mm-hmm. I thought I was in heaven on earth, to be honest. <laughs> I, I felt just sort of woken up in a sort of a, a, a different world because suddenly we had many people speaking English. The children were a bit older. They both went to kind of preschool, kindergarten. And I had a car. I had a job. That's where I worked as a pharmacist and I got in a hospital there. And to be honest, I'm glad I had a job because if I hadn't had a job, part of the challenge at that time was certainly not getting addicted to gin and tonics by the pool. <laughs> so, so a job probably saved me from that. But yeah. you quite enjoyed your time out there. How long were you there then? We were there just over a year. And then that was part of a, another change in our lives. It was part of actually probably becoming a Christian, which seems a bit odd. But part of the challenges in, of the Middle East is learning a bit more about other cultures, other values. And certainly there are a lot of inequalities in the Middle East. There's mm-hmm. inequalities in terms of what nationality you are, what gender you are, what religion you are. And so I started to question more things about that and about life in general. Anyway, we, we left the Middle East, went back to the UK, built an MBA in Bradford, and we went to Bradford. And we rented a house directly across the street from a church. And I remember... Now, the vicar coming across to sort of say, I see you've just moved in. Do you think you'd like to visit us in church? Mm-hmm. And us saying, no, 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 definitely not. But over time, we did. And Bill became a Christian. And we were sort of bobbling along. Then we got transferred to the Netherlands again, but this time to a different part. This time to the part where everyone spoke English and life was easy. Mm-hmm. In fact, I thought I could speak Dutch but I then found out I'd learned Kronings and that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that was that. So in the Netherlands, that's where we really became Christians. We had a kind of bit of a crisis, started going to the international church and really had a major life change. We really reevaluated things, really tried to work out what was important, really came to faith in a meaningful way in the Netherlands. And that was a life changer. Our kids, even now, would talk about life before mum and dad were Christians and after mum and dad were Christians. Really? I mean, I, I cringe when they say that. But clearly, our parenting became better, our values got more sorted out. And it's really interesting. Yes. I mean, it was like moving from darkness into light. Anyway, after four years, we felt that in terms of our Christian walk, we weren't really growing as much as maybe we could. And part of that was we were doing church, we were going to home groups and Bible studies and very involved in a whole lot of the life of the church. But we had chunks of things that we didn't quite more deeply understand and it's all a bit disjointed. So we then did two years in Bible college in Berwick-upon-Tweed. Were you thinking that you'd come out and actually work in the ministry as preachers? No. No? At the time we thought we'd end up back in the Middle East doing secular work and just being there for people to talk to us and that we could explain what we believed and just be living examples. After two years, we didn't really know what we were going to do. It was a bit open-ended, but we did approach a group who were involved in mission, again, using your secular skills to help develop countries. And we got a very interesting first reply from them. The first reply was, we don't know what to do with Bill, but if Irene was a man, it would be all right. Wow, that's a strange thing to say. What it really was, was they understood the word pharmacist, they understood what I did, but Bill had an oil industry background and they didn't really understand oil industry stuff. Okay. We thought no more about it, we thought, well, that's the end of that. But then later on, we got another letter from them, and this was from a group in Nepal and Kathmandu, and when we got that letter, it was like sitting on top of a roller coaster. 
you had this feeling that if you responded to this letter, everything was just going to go whoosh and change <laughs> and there would be no stopping it. And I remember looking at this letter going, this is going to be big. We either step out or we don't. And we responded to the letter positively to say, yes, we'd like to explore this area more. Usually all these things have a lot of process and very often it takes people two years to get onto the field from a first sort of contact. Well, well, we were in Kathmandu within five months. We had to raise our funding to go there because it's the kind of work you do where you're not paid to do the work. You raise your own support to go and do the work. And we thought we'll never raise the money because we don't have many church connections Everyone's busy raising families, mortgages, da 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 da. Mm -hmm. But the money came in, and that's often a sign from God that you're meant to do something. If the resources come, you say, okay, the resources are here. We need to get on and do it. I think it's the same in life, isn't it? If everything suddenly is against what you're trying to do, you get the feeling that for some reason you're not really meant to do it. But when things come together, you get more of a feeling that, yeah, this is right. Exactly. And that's how life has been for us very much so that basically you start to get the sense this is coming together, this is moving in this direction. So we went to Kathmandu with our two children and we were there for the next six years, basically doing all sorts of development work. Nepal is a poor country and has many, many challenges in many ways. There are challenges in terms of women's issues, poverty, health. The mission we worked with worked in all these areas. Now in 2000, again, you have one of these moments, and we had a communication from a group in Mongolia called Joint Christian Services, and it basically said, you've been nominated for the position of Executive Director of Joint Christian Services in Mongolia, would you please prayerfully consider it? (laughs) You think, what? (laughs) But the reality was, our, our son was in university, our daughter was coming to the end of her high school, we couldn't come up with any good reason why not to consider it. Mm-hmm. Although I could come up with a few now, having had experience. <laughs> but in hindsight. In hindsight. <laughs> so we, we followed through and we ended up in Mongolia in the summer of 2002. And at that point, Mongolia was very much coming out of its post-communist past. Mm-hmm. It was, in some ways, very different from Nepal, but in other ways, similar. And people have a Tibetan Buddhist background. But because of the Russian influence for 70 years, many people were atheists and say there, there is no God. They were working very hard on lots of areas in terms of development of the country. They're very big in free speech here because having had control for so many years, they're very anti-censorship of any kind. Okay. So that, that, that's exciting. It is. And interestingly, in terms of women's issues, it's the opposite of Nepal. In Nepal, women are very disadvantaged, that basically, on the whole, women would not be educated, they would not be able to read, they would have the poorest nutrition at home, and be very much, not exactly unwanted, but basically the boys are are the important people in Nepali life. In Mongolia, there are different gender inequities here. So in general, families would choose to educate girls rather than boys. That's incredible. Yeah, and the, the rationale for that is that if you have a boy, he may well be able to do a job that doesn't require much education. So he could become a construction worker or a herder or a driver or a security guard. These are jobs that don't require an awful lot of academic qualifications. But people want their girls to have academic qualifications so that they have choices and jobs and choices in life. Wow, that's and a so, really a real juxtaposition of most 
countries, in a lot of countries, mm-hmm. it's the, the boy who gets the education, the boy who gets the chances. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, in terms of education, the girls get the chances. And that leads to different problems in society, as what you have is you've got a very highly educated female population and a more poorly educated male population. And so then you have challenges in terms of girls finding um, life partners, marriage partners, that have got similar education to themselves because there just plain aren't so many educated men to go around. Yeah. You end up with very well-educated women with good jobs married to unemployed husbands. And the unemployed husbands get resentful because they're not in control of finances or anything. Mm-hmm. And so you often end up the cycle of the men drinking a lot and domestic violence and abuse. And the education disparity definitely fuels that. It's not the only thing, but it's, it's part of what yeah, fuels it. Well, I can imagine. <clears throat> and I mean, I'm greatly challenged by that. I mean, one of the things I would say I'm here to do is just to be a, a listening ear for people, be somebody from outside the culture that people can talk to, because often people can't talk to people in their own culture because there are expected norms, expected things. And the sad question people ask me is how often does your husband hit you? And the question is not, does your husband hit you? The question is, how often? How often, yeah. It's an expectation <laughs> it's there, ex- then. The, the expectation is your husband hits you. And the question is, does he hit you when he's drunk? Does he hit you once a week? Does he hit you when you burnt the dinner? Does he hit you when the kids play up? What's your life like compared to mine? And are they shocked when you <laughs> say, no, that just doesn't happen in our marriage? <laughs> yes, they, they just don't believe it. They, they think you're lying to them. And they say, well, that can't be true. That's not right. You know, what kind of marriage do you have when your husband doesn't hit you? Which is quite challenging. Now, the, the society is starting to pick up in that. And in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more publicity about domestic abuse. And there's been a couple of centres opened up for women. And the police have opened, a, I don't know what you call it, an educational facility for husbands. Now, it could have been wives as well, but generally it tends to be husbands. Mm-hmm. So if their wives do report them, then they have to do a month of re-education. But it's also semi-fueled by alcohol abuse. In Mongolia, vodka is cheap and readily available. Um, people have hard lives. People are struggling with lots of issues. And people drink to just escape for a little yeah. bit, just yeah. take the edge off. But one of the things I like about Mongolia is that it's a country that has a lot of hope for the future. It's a young population, they're working hard, education's improving, and people expect their children to have a better life than they do. So that there's definitely a sense of better days coming. Yes. And in the time we've been in Mongolia, certainly opportunities have changed dramatically. I mean, some are good, some are not good, and some are debatable. So things like when we were first in Mongolia, there were only a handful of private cars around. There were overcrowded, horrific buses or people walked or the occasional car that you could flag down as a taxi. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of car ownership and many, many families will have a car and some will have more than one car. And that's now led to total gridlock in the city. I mean, you, you used to be able to cross the road any time you wanted to because there were no cars. Now you can cross the road any time you want to because the cars are all stopped. in a big traffic jam stopped. <laughs> so... It's quite nice to hear that a place like Mongolia has growth in wealth. Yes. Now, in terms of the wealth, the cars are relatively cheap here because what we get is we get second-hand cars from Japan that would fail Japanese emission tests. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. And there's now quite a debate about the age of cars, the condition and everything else, because right now the good thing is there's a lot of um, hybrid cars around which are better for the environment, mm-hmm. but there's still horrific air pollution 
and it's a big challenge. It's been cut dramatically in the last year or so because people now cannot burn raw coal. People can only burn like charcoal briquettes and that has improved the air quality dramatically. So people do care about the environment. There's a movement there to make things better. Two years ago, mothers protested in Parliament Square about the quality of the air for their young children. I mean, that's one of the challenges we have now with potentially COVID, is the country has such a high incidence of respiratory problems due to poor air quality. We've got very little COVID compared to the rest of the world, but people are terrified of COVID becoming an issue here because the hospitals wouldn't cope. You've got a huge portion of people with underlying respiratory conditions and you have overcrowding. So to try and give you a picture of Mongolia, there's sort of four Mongolias. There's summer Mongolia and winter Mongolia, and there's the countryside and the city. In the winter, we have a long, cold winter. Last week, it got down to minus 50 with wind chill minus 56. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty cold. <laughs> today, today, it was minus 30-ish. And you'll have that for about two, three months. In the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, where I live, half the country's population live in the capital city. So it's a population of 3 million in the whole country. So it's a massive country, three times the size of France. Half of the people are living in one city. Of that half, maybe a third are living in apartments, which are on the central heating system and have hot and cold water, electricity and sewage water drainage system. The other two thirds are living in what's called Ger districts. A Ger is a yurt, basically a felted tent. And so two thirds of people are living in felted tents or small wooden houses they've built themselves mainly. They're not part of the heating grid. They're not part of the water system. They're burning what they can to keep warm. A fire is not a luxury here. A wood burner is not an optional extra. No. It's a necessity. It's life and death, yes. It's life and death. And people will burn plastics. They'll burn whatever they can to keep warm. But the move to coke briquettes has improved things quite dramatically. And again, there are big challenges. There's a huge proportion of people living in quite serious financial poverty. Basically, the government have like a family allowance type of thing. And there's a number of families living only on their family allowance. Mm -hmm. And in terms of food, they're living on bread and tea and nothing else. Wow. And the choices are, do we buy bread or do we buy coal? What's it going to be? We can't have both. So looping back round again, we were in Mongolia for five years working with Joint Christian Service, doing similar work to the work in Nepal. And at the end of that time, I was asked to look after a ladies' group. And this ladies' group had been started by a Brazilian lady and a Filipino lady. And they were both leaving and they asked me to look after the group. So I did that. And the group had been making fridge magnets of all things. As you do. <laughs> there we are. We're busy making fridge magnets of little yurts and sheep and such like in our kitchen. And from that, we started a company called Mary and Martha Mongolia. Now, Linda, when we were at school together, if someone had told me I'd be making fridge magnets in my kitchen in <laughs> outer Mongolia. I know, it sounds it, unbelievable, doesn't it? It does. It sounds it like does. one of the most extreme things that you could think up, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Fairly quickly, we had somebody that did hand knitting. Then we had a lady that painted a silk scarves. And our apartment is not huge by any means. We've got a kitchen, a living room, and a bedroom. The living room got turned into an office workshop shop. <laughs> and people used to meet there. We used to work on products. We used to work on ideas. And it started from that. And then the next year, we rented a counter at the entrance of a supermarket. And then we had two counters. Then we had the whole of the front bit of the supermarket. Then we did an aisle of the supermarket and 
gradually we were working at how to do things, getting to know artisans, working on products, and it's been exciting and challenging. And the further away people live from the city, the harder it is to actually work on things. So if you can imagine, we make a lot of handmade felt slippers. Now, Mongolians don't wear felt slippers. If you're in a yurt, you put your boots on when you get up in the morning and you take your boots off when you go to bed at night. So felt slippers are kind of a new foreign introductory thing, but many people have learned how to make felt because there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of sheep here. If you're in the Gobi, try to understand that this foreigner expects these slippers. Let me try and give you a list. The slippers should be the same size, both feet. They should be the same colour, hmm. the same thickness. Maybe embroider the same design on them. But if you live in the middle of the Gobi Desert and you're making this thing that you've got no need for yourself. Yeah, and you don't really understand. And No, no. And you say, well, they're a pair of slippers. What's your problem, lady? (laughs) (laughs) And so it gets harder to to work on these issues the further you are away from the city. Yeah. Anyway, up until a, a year ago, we were growing year on year. So by 2019... We were working with 30 artisan groups, supporting about 200 individual artisans. And we had 25 staff and a shop in Ulaanbaatar. And then we had other odd units at different times. And all was going great guns. And then COVID hit. Yeah. Anyway, I'll talk about COVID in a minute. But I'd like to talk about one of the other groups we work with. We've always got a heart for the disadvantaged. Mm. And if we can, we would. We will try and support people that just need a bit of a start because a lot of people actually have had lives that actually everything's been against them. And we work with one group called Streamers in the Desert. And this is a group that works with girls who've either been working on the streets or have been trafficked to China mainly. Have their parents Mm -hmm. sold them effectively or have they been captured in some way? No, they've actually probably sold themselves by mistake. Right. They haven't understood what they're getting into. Yeah. Yes, yeah. things will have happened. Like they've been offered a job in China and big money, blah, 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 blah. And of course, they end up going to China. Their passport's taken away from them. They end up working in a brothel with mm. no finance, no passport, no language, no nothing and no mm-hmm. idea where they are. How awful. It, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And then this is a shame culture. So if they do make their way back to Mongolia... There's an awful lot of shame and sometimes their families won't have them back and it's quite complex. And also in terms of poverty, girls end up working in the street because they have no other choices. Anyway, this group streams in the desert. If girls choose that they want to lead a different life, they will go into like a six-month programme where they do a lot of work on self-esteem, medical issues, raising children, basic life skills, managing money. And they also learned to make crafts as well. They do jewellery and they do making mitts from recycled jumpers and things. Mm-hmm. And our role is we, we buy the, the products. So basically we can help finance the operation and keep things going. And you yes. actually buy the stuff up front, don't you? So yes. they're not waiting until you've sold it before they get the money. There's no, no you no. actually <laughs> take the risk, really, don't you? Yes. We take the risk, and that's why we're actually in a a slightly challenging position now, shall we say. So basically, we're making orders at the end of 2019, expecting things to be much the same as in 2020. Mm -hmm. We will make an order, we'll pay a deposit, quality check-in delivery, and then pay the balance, then they get another deposit and make the next bit. Mm -hmm. So as COVID hit, we had financially committed to all the artisans for 2020. People were making deliveries. We were well on the way January, February, before we realised this is 
actually going to go really badly wrong yes, here. Yes. What we're in the position now is that we've now got a warehouse full of stuff and effectively no customers. And so right now, our artisans are really hurting because I mean, they've known for months that actually we would not be able to order much this year. And we've been doing a bit of fundraising to try and support people as, in some way as much as we can. We knew we were dependent on tourism to a big extent. And Mongolia's got a short tourist season in the summer because people don't like visiting here in the winter when you've got rubbish air quality and temperatures minus 30. Yeah. Well, this year, the government closed the borders in February and there have been no scheduled flights since February in the country at all. Which has, of course, kept you safe. Mm-hmm. It's kept us safe. Mm-hmm. So that's been the good news, but it's it's meant we've had no tourism at all. So um, our challenge now is just hanging in, trying to not take out any more loan than we've currently got and hope that we can actually get more customers. And I need to give a big plug to my friend Barbara. Barbara came out to Mongolia several years ago. Barbara is part of a church in Cambridge called New Life Church, and she runs a Facebook group called Hand in Hand Mongolia, and she sells our products here, or in the UK, to support her project. And her project is called Winter Kits for Kids. Now, what she does is she buys from us, and we ship in bulk to Barbara, which is great, because right now there's no postal services from here either. And she sells in the UK, and any money she makes comes back to Mongolia, And she funds this Winter Kits for Kids, which is actually funding a project which buys winter clothes, school bags and things for disadvantaged families. So check her out on Facebook, Hand in Hand. And if you don't come up with with it right away, try Hand in Hand Mongolia and you should find her. And can people buy directly from you, from Mary and Martha? Not easily. And the reason for that is that to export legally and properly, people have to pay us by bank transfer. It'll be between 25 and $40 to do a bank transfer. Right. Okay. So if you're trying to be one thing, it's hopeless. Also right now, there's no post. We can send things out by a couple of courier companies, and that is incredibly expensive. So to buy maybe a pair of slippers from me, it's going to cost you something like £70 for me to ship you a pair of slippers. But because we're sending to Barbara in bulk... The shipping costs are dramatically reduced if we can work that way. You you can look for us on our Facebook page or online, but we don't run an online shop as such. So we can supply big quantities to shops or people have an organisation that they think they'd like to do something. But one or two things is, is really hard. When you look back over your life, are there any changes that you think you'd make or would you do exactly the same again? Oh, gosh. I, I don't mean the little things. I mean the big decisions. The, like The big decisions. You know, the, the going to Nepal. The going, that, that, was, that was the key life-changing moment, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the big one, going to Nepal. Oh, I would do that again in a, in a heartbeat. I think you need to remember in all these things, you always get a lot more than you give. I have met so many amazing people. It has been totally inspiring, the people I've met in life. So, no, I would do the same again. I remember you talking to me before when you first arrived there and you were talking about just going to the post office to get some things. I think it was something sent or you wanted papers or something. And it yeah. was you had to go back countless times, queue for hours. You, you struggled with the language at first, which I'm, I'm sure you've probably got yes. over now. To me, I remember thinking at the time, I'd have got the first flight home, you know. But you, you also have a great sense of humour about it as well. And we're really laughing about what you had to do to achieve things. Oh, you have to have a sense of humour. I think one of the funniest times was opening a company bank account and I went to the bank 
And I had a piece of paper to open the company account. And the girl looked at me and said, well, you need a such and such. Mm. I thought, so off I go and get the such and such, go back again. And she says, haven't you brought a And I go, anyway, third time I go back to the bank with my bits. I think, thinking, why didn't you just tell me the list at the beginning? Because you didn't that's ask. Not, I didn't ask. Yeah, of course I didn't ask. And, and she looked at me so sympathetic, this girl, and said, don't worry. We know you're stupid, but you're a foreigner and you can't help it. <laughs> it. It keeps you cut down to size living in a foreign country. We're on the world's biggest game of snakes and ladders here and I'm down the snake again. <laughs> That's great. That's a good way of looking at it, actually. That's all we have time for in this edition of Women Making Waves. We'd like to thank our guests, Irene Manley and Kay King. If you know of a woman who's making waves, we'd like to speak to her. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. Women Making Waves is a jibber-jabber production.